Well, good morning, Harvest. And um, I have an announcement to begin with, and the announcement is actually what you see on the screen behind me. And it is the announcement of Emmanuel. And as we've been already singing about and referencing, as I don't know if you realize, it's December. And uh, Christmas is coming. It's that time of the year that we get to have the opportunity just to kind of have ourselves focus in on the birth of Christ and in his coming. And uh, this year, we're going to be covering Luke chapters 1 and 2. So if you would, grab your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 1. Uh, it's page uh, 855 if you're using one of the Bibles uh, behind the, the seats there. Um, and I do realize that uh, at the birth of Christ, there probably was not snow coming down, as you can see on the screen. And I realize that's probably not the case. And there probably were not evergreen trees there. And uh, probably the whole scene did not look anything like that in all reality. But uh, uh, we are going to dive into a text that is going to help us over these coming weeks grab a hold of what uh, Christmas, as we talk about it, what the birth of Christ really looked like and how it took place. Um, Now, one of the things I want for you to know is Pastor Nick and I were talking about what do we do this Christmas? It's always kind of an interesting Uh, thing to be in the position I'm in when every Christmas you come and what do you teach about? What do you talk about? What do we cover together as a church family? And and, uh, we decided that we think every four to five years we need to come back to Luke chapters one and two uh, and just come back and dive into the text. And it's been four to five years since we did that. So this year we're coming back to this and kind of intend to do so in the years ahead, every four or five years, let's just come back to the main core of the story and dive in together. And this story is very familiar, but hey, let's hear it again, right? And Because uh, it's a great, great, uh, true story of things going on. So that's what's kind of behind it. Uh, today we have the most amount of text in our four times that we have together. So we're going to take it all in, run with it. And let me just start right away. Luke chapter 1. We're going to cover verses 1 through 4 right now. It kind of sets up what's taking place in the text. Verses 1 through 4, I'll read it here for us. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. Most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. These first four verses kind of set things up for it, and a couple things I want to touch on. One is uh, Luke, the human author of this, is saying that what we are about to read is an eyewitness, gathered, compiled narrative, true account of what took place. It's not secondhand, it's not thirdhand, it's not fourthhand. It's the idea of a firsthand account gathered together from people who were like, I was there. Uh, I was an eyewitness to these various things. By the way, it's not an exhaustive compilation. It doesn't tell us everything we might want to know, but it tells us everything that we really need to know. It gives the facts and the data. They're carefully put together here. Uh, God has breathed them out, and yet Luke is this one who is being used by the Lord to put and compile this all together so we have that information. I will tell you, the big part of that is, is that it's coming together with intellectual integrity. 
This is not just some random story that some guy was up late at night and thought, hey, I've got a story for my kids. There's intellectual integrity that takes place and all that. In fact, by the way, Luke is a physician. He's a doctor. And in my past, I used to deal with a number of physicians and research. And one of the things about that I noticed about it with doctors is they love good research. They love good research and they detest bad research. And uh, in that, they are, are, are able to have an ability to be critical about that. They can look at it. They kind of have an eye for it. They can see when it's like questionable and they can see when it's good. And they grab a hold of the good, get rid of the bad because they want real data that's verifiable and usable and practical with that. And Luke is one of those kinds of guys. Notice in the text that he's writing it to someone, Theophilus. He is not writing it to some randomness, to just whoever is ever going to read this someday. He is actually writing this for an individual that's here. And Luke wants to, in writing to this individual that he knows, in fact, he calls him most excellent Theophilus, there's a high respect for this guy. And this guy, as the text is saying, is receiving teaching, is hearing about what the Lord has done, obviously post the cross and the resurrection, and he's learning about these things. And here Luke is wanting to gather this information for this most excellent Theophilus. I tell you, that makes a difference in how someone does research. Because it's not for a written article. This is for a person that you know. And you want to provide them with good data in that. And that's who he's writing. It's very personal kind of a letter on the whole because of it. It's kind of like, listen, Theophilus, here are verified, certified facts that I've researched out, put together and compiled together that I want for you to know about as you're learning about who the Lord Jesus is. And I love that. And by the way, it's the same for us. And so in his compiling of this, it's the same for us. Hey, listen, we need to come at this as though this is some really good research that's been put together for us about who the Lord is. And so we're going to dive into that. In fact, I want to pause for a second, and I just want to ask for the Lord to help us even more so with that, okay? Let me do that. God, I pray that you would help us as we dive in this Christmas season into this text, that this information that, that the human author Luke is put together, and yet we know that this is God-breathed truth. You are the ultimate source behind this, and it is all about you. And God, I would just ask that you would help us to see you bigger and understand you grander, and that we would be in awe of you in an increasing way. So we look forward to studying this, and I just pray to be fruitful in our lives and beyond. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, verse 5. Opening statement in verse 5 says, In the days of Herod, king of Judah. Okay, it tells us when this is taking place. He's now finished the introduction. He's into the context of what's going on. And he tells us in this time. Let me give you a couple pieces of data about Herod and Israel at the time. Herod, Herod the Great at the time, he reigned from 47 to 4 BC. Wait a second. So does that mean Jesus wasn't born on 0 BC? Yep. I just blew some minds there, okay? Um, all your calendars are all messed up now. No, it's all good. But this is when he was reigning. He was, he was in this time period when Herod the Great was there. Herod the Great was not the kind of guy you would want to get to know real well. Why do I say that? I say that because he was a cruel 
ruler. He was also a very, in, in, a, in a human way, a very smart ruler in a number of ways. And I can't go into the depth of it, but, but, but this guy, he had helped to actually finish out some of the rebuilding of the temple that, that we're going to see here in just a little bit, that he had helped with some of that. And that was kind of a political coming along the Jews. He was half Jew, by the way, and he's helping with some of the finishing off of the temple. And in that, he even has it done to where he puts the Roman eagle on part of the temple. So it's kind of like, I'm helping you, but know this. When you walk in, Rome's in charge. And it's this interesting political maneuvering that it does. He had nine wives. You probably wouldn't want to be one of his wives because one of them he had executed. I mean, it's kind of like Henry VIII. You don't want to be married to him. And uh, that was Herod the Great at the time. Israel, in this time, these were dark days for Israel. There were dark days for a number of reasons, and one of the reasons is just where Israel was at spiritually. They had kind of gotten lost a bit. So it had been thousands and thousands of years since uh, God first told that there was going to be one that was coming, that there's going to be one, a Messiah that will be coming, and yet they hadn't seen the Messiah. And then, by the way, if you look in your Bibles, you look at the last page of the Old Testament, you turn over and you go to the New Testament, there's like these a couple pages in between that has a title page called New Testament in there, right in there 400 years, because for 400 years, God has been silent with his people. 400 years. We say that and it doesn't sound like a whole lot. But listen, that's going all the way back to like for us, like the 1600. Okay? So that's a long time and nothing. God has been silent during all of that time. One of the things that was even happening in that day was that there were some who were getting this idea of what eternity was, and many were thinking that there was no literal eternity. And many of the Jews were even carrying around this theology that what happened was there's, God's disappeared, he's kind of gone from things, there is no literal eternity, and then they started having this idea that you actually live, quote, eternity through your children. That's important here in a few minutes. Just tuck that in the back of your mind. These things are going on. Uh, uh, God is like gone in their eyes, but he is not, right? By the way, have you ever felt like sometimes like what's God up to? Where is he at? What's going on? And we can drift and we can lose sight and we can lose our anchoring in him. Know this, friends. He's got everything right on plan. Okay? And that even includes his silence at times with it. So we pick up, and the Lord's going to step into this older couple. Uh, here we go, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Uh, bless their hearts. Here we learn about them, verses 5 and 6. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was what? Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So this couple is introduced. Uh, we're given this upfront information. Zechariah, verse 5, he's a priest. Now don't think of priests like we think of priests like in Catholicism today. He was a lay priest in the day. And, and Old Testament priests were determined by lineage. And he is coming out of that. 
So he's coming out of a line, First Chronicles 24. There was an order of 24 families uh, from the line of Aaron. Aaron was Moses' right-hand man. He was the first priest that God put into place. God appointed these 24 families to serve in the house of the Lord as priests. And Ezra 2, only four of the 24 families uh, returned from exile. But then Nehemiah reinstu- reinstitutes the 24 families in it. Abijah that it talks about is the eighth division out of the 24 as listed in Nehemiah 12. This is Zechariah's lineage. This matters. It's important. The big point of all this is that by the time we get to Luke chapter 1, there are actually about estimated some 18,000 priests. And the vast, vast majority of them are lay priests. They don't live right there at the temple. They live all around from the divisions. They have homes and jobs or things that they do, that they're doing it. And they are part of the line of the establishment of what's going on. And what happened was, is each of the 24 tribes, not tribes, each of the 24 lines of priests would serve one week every six months at the temple. So if you're part, it's kind of like the army reserves, okay? So if you're part of them, they would come in for one week, and then you go back home. Then the next would come in the next week, and then they'd go back home. So your uh, line of priests, if you were part of that, would serve two times every year. Uh, I'm going to build out on that in a little bit because God is in the timing of it. Now, that's Zechariah. Elizabeth, Elizabeth, we learn that she's the daughter of Aaron from that lineage of things. That's important. A priestly lineage married a priestly lineage woman. It was preferred to do so in the day. That's what they wanted to have happen. If you were in the line of it, you wanted to marry someone that was lining. I'm going to tell you, it didn't always happen. And this is just giving us little pieces of information about this couple. It mattered to them. I don't want to get too much sanctified information, but maybe I could say it this way. It mattered to Zachariah and Elizabeth who they married. And that tells you a lot about who they are. Okay? And so we learn that this older couple's on track with the Lord. Um, here, for, they're from a priestly lineage. And verse 6, they both walked rightly. They both walked blamelessly before the Lord. Here's what's important with that. That is the same terminology that in the last couple months in our He is Bigger Than series, that is the same terminology that was used of Noah and of Job. God uses this. They're not perfect. They're not above everybody else. But it's just making a statement that here's a couple that is walking with the Lord and God's about to use them. Just a very cool statement. Oh, that the Lord would say that about us, right? Verse 7, but they had no child, so now we have a problem, because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. All of that is information that leads to a problem. Why do I say that? Because, remember what I said? For a lot of people in that day, they thought there was no literal eternity. They thought that eternity was lived through your children. And if you didn't have children, there was no eternity for your family. And that just carried a funk along with it. And you had a bit of an outcastness with it. Plus, let me just say this, the personal hardship of it. I mean, some of you in this room know about that. You want to have a child, but it's just not working. It's just not happening. 
And in their personal hurt of that. And out of that, it's like, Lord, come on. Like, like I thought you designed it to be this way, that we could have children, and we're not having children. And there's personal hardship with it. I've already alluded to the social hardship of it. And when, if you didn't have children, it was a down, it's so sad, it was viewed as a downcast thing at that time. Like something's wrong with you. Like God has turned his eyes from you. It's just so sad. It was a spiritual hardship. Again, for them, just imagine them wrestling, God, what, what are you doing? But I do want to note this. Barrenness was a common thing in the Old Testament that God used. I'm talking about Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Samson's mom and Hannah. And the Lord has used it. Listen, let me put this together, application point. Walking with the Lord does not mean life gets easy. Walking with the Lord means walking with the Lord. And in fact, walking with the Lord can mean life gets harder. And in our culture, we kind of have this call, come to Jesus and all will be good. Friends, that is not biblical. That is not biblical. Here is this couple walking blamelessly with the Lord. They don't have any children and they angst over it because we're going to find out a little bit later that they're actually praying that God would give them a child and yet God is silent in that as well. Verses 8 through 10. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, okay, got the picture? His division is on duty. Verse 9, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot, we'll come to that in just a second, to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Okay, this is so cool. I wish we did this nowadays. Okay, uh, there's some cool things about this. So let me set the scene on kind of what goes on with an incense offering. First, the incense offering took place twice a day. It would take place in the morning time. It would take place in the evening time. And they would have this. It would take place at the temple. And what was going on with this is that the, the, a priest would do the burning of the incense. And once you did that, you were never to, you were not in the lot for casting the dice. Okay, so let, let me work it through. In fact, let me, let's bring up some pictures of the temple here and, and work our way through this. So this is kind of some imager, imagery of the temple area here back in the day. You can see on the center screen here, there's this big kind of outer court. It's the court of the Gentiles that was out there. That's where Gentiles and Jews could come inside kind of the perimeter walls of things and they could come and be there. Then you move into the beautiful gate Uh, You come in and it's kind of from the outer area, you come in through the beautiful gate and that's where you then enter into the next area of the court. And inside that court, that's where Jewish men and women could be able to go into that area. Then you come into the next doorway that's there and that leads into the area where, where that would lead to where the priests would be able to gather back in that area as you can kind of see with the additional imagery there. Then from there, actually that's the area where they would do do the burned uh, animals and the sacrifices would be outside because you didn't want to do it on the inside. And so they would do it in that outside area and there would be this big area for the, for the burning of the animals for sacrifice. And, and then in that, they would go up to the steps 
that would then lead into the door entry. Now, so what would take place is, and inside the door entry is the inner sanctuary. And, and I'll tell some about that. You can see it right there, uh, a little bit of a depiction there of the inner sanctuary. Then behind that is the Holy of Holies. Now, uh, the Holy of Holies, and let me set this, because uh, I want us to imagine like we're part of what's about to take place here. The size of the inner sanctuary is about 30 feet wide. Let's just take it. It's about the front row here in the center section. It's about that wide. It, the, when you walked in the door, let's kind of take it from the door. If you walked in the door in the back, it's 30 feet wide, 60 feet deep, 60 feet high. It's essentially the, from the, the front of the platform here out to the width, straight back. That's almost the exact size of the inner sanctuary. And no, we didn't build this for that purpose. Okay, but that's actually, I stepped it off yesterday. And that's almost exactly the size. Now, here is where the curtain would be. As you can kind of the red curtain you could see there uh, in the imagery. And behind that is the Holy of Holies. That section is about 30 feet by 30 feet, which is actually very close to about this width going back to there. Now, the incense was done out where you are. The Holy of Holies would only be entered once a year by the high priest, and that's when they would tie a rope around his foot, and if he didn't come out, they would drag him out. Um, in that. And that's the one time a year that they would meet in the Ark of the Covenant and so forth is back here. And so what's going on in this whole scene is actually, let's kind of work with the text here. Zechariah verse 9 is chosen by Lot. So in other words, it's literally they cast dice for it, okay? And, And so they had the number of priests who had not done incense offering yet in their lifetime. Generally, this was a once in a lifetime event for a lay priest. And so once you did it, you couldn't be in on the dice casting. And so there they are rolling. (laughs) No, I'm I'm not, that's not my thing. But, you know, it's like snake eyes or whatever. And, uh, And so whoever gets that becomes the priest for that morning or that evening. And then they're done for that. This time, this moment, this day, Zechariah. Hey, God is in the dice. Okay? Don't lose that. Now, don't take that to Vegas. But just just know that God is in the timing of things with it. And on this day and all the times, because Zechariah is older, so he would be coming year after year after year after year, and it's never been his time yet, never been his time yet, never been his time yet, and my, today's his day. And, and it's cast for him. And so he comes, and what takes place in the text, we'll read here in just a second. All of the people in the uh, uh, kind of the, the, the center court where the Jewish men and women could be able to gather, in the area where the priests would gather, the steps leading up, all the people, when, this, when the one individual going in to do this, they're all out praying. Isn't that cool? I mean, it's like, stop, everybody stop with everything going on. He's going in to do the incense offering. And they would stay out in those court areas and they would pray over this. And he would go in, he would offer the incense offering up, and then what would take place is he would come out onto the, out of the doors, he would, he would be in by himself, there was no one else with him, just him. And he would come out on the steps of, so let's say he would come out into the lobby, 
And he would then, the priests would then gather together and they would read the statement from Numbers chapter 6. I'll read it here in just a minute. And then all the people would hear that and then they would move on with their day. I think that is so cool. And then they'd do it again at night. So let's work with this. So here, he is chosen by Lot. It's his time. It's his day. What happens when he goes inside? Verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled. I'd be too. Listen, I mean... We read these things, and we just go right past them. But literally for this older man, I don't know exactly how old he is, but literally for this older man, this is the time of his life that he gets to go in as the one kind of representing the people of God. And this morning, this evening, be able to give the incense offering for that. What a special, special moment. And he comes in like he's seen it a thousand times. And he comes in, and he doesn't remember anyone seeing an angel of the Lord there. But on his call, it is. I'd be freaking out if someone's standing in there. And I didn't know anyone was supposed to. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. You get this? Your prayer has been heard. What prayer? And your wife will bear you a son. I.e., they have been praying for a child, and God's heard. You wonder if God ever hears? He hears. And you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. That's essentially he is going to be like following the Nazarite vow uh, from birth. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Don't lose that. Hold on to that. By the way, that's not normal. Verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. (laughs) When when you found out you were going to have a child, whether it was like the pink orange thing, whether it was like finding out from the doctor, and you find out you have a child, you don't get any information like this. I mean, this is gold. No more baby name books. <laughs> None of that kind of stuff. You've been given all kinds of information. You found out all these kinds of things. And, and, and how cool is this that the Lord would be able to tell him all this? By the way, I want to make a comment just as a, as, as a man and, a, and as a father. When he says he will turn the hearts of the fathers, fathers in that day were known to be angry, cruel men in general. And that is a sinful way to live in response to a responsibility of a dad. And that's why in here it's even saying part of what's going to happen is dad's lives are going to change. Hey, when a person comes to Christ, our lives are to change. Not just in making a declaration of receiving Christ as my Savior, but it's supposed to change how I live in every aspect of our lives. And this is coming out. Well, let's keep going. Verse 18, Zechariah, 
said to the angel, awesome. No. He says, how shall I know this? I actually like New International Version. It says, how can I be sure? It really encapsulates the idea of the language here in this moment. Wait a second. How can I know that? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Well, that makes some sense. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. In other words, I'm one of the big ones. I stand in the presence of God. Remember a series in Revelation? And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the days that these takes place. Because you have not believed my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. By the way, it's really important here to understand for Zechariah. Um, he's really not first questioning, like, I'm sorry, but we're really old and how can this kind of go? But actually, the core of his question is he's questioning the promise itself. Wait a second. The promise. I'm going to keep going, and we'll see why that's important here in just a second. It's not so much about the how. It's more about the promise itself. Verse 21. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, remember? They're all outside praying, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he finally came out, everyone knew that this is like especially long. And when he finally came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. Wait, how did they realize he'd seen a vision? I mean, think it, he comes out, he comes out of the inner sanctuary, he's out in the lobby. And so then, then let's kind of put it this way. So all, all the Jewish men and women are in the parking lot. And then outside of the parking lot, the court of the Gentiles is kind of like anybody and everybody who could be there. And he comes out. And so everybody out in the lobby, the doors are open and everybody's waiting to hear. And he's like, and it's like, what happened? And somehow they're able to figure out that something has taken place here with what's going on with them. And uh, he remained mute. Verse 23, and when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. There's so many other things I want to know, but the text doesn't tell us about. But it just tells us here that this couple heads home. He comes out onto the ledge ready to declare to them as the priests come and ready to declare number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord keep his, let it, the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And he can't say a word of it. And then eventually they go home. Verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. I would encourage you to underline that. Here this couple leaves the temple grounds. We're back home with them. The Lord has stepped big into their lives. And this childless, older couple now conceives. How long was it? I don't know. And then it tells us, and for five months, Elizabeth kept herself hidden. Why would she do that? If, I'll just say, many of you moms know why. Sometimes it's because of, of miscarriage, and you don't want to tell anyone until it's further enough along. 
But she's an older woman. And she hasn't been able to have a child. And maybe she is just waiting to make sure this is for real. And maybe she's trying to figure out how in the world is she going to explain this to the, to the women and the people in, in the town that they live in. Because everybody knows and everybody's talked. It's so sad. But she kept herself hidden for five months, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Oh, you read that and you ache for her. And yet she's hidden, and I'll say she's probably also just thrilled to pieces and rejoicing over this. Well, from stepping into this older couple to stepping into the life of a young woman, here we go, out of the blue, a young engaged woman is shocked by news that she's going to bring the one. Verse 26, in the sixth month... The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. By the way, I think the sixth month is referencing it's now been six months since Elizabeth has been pregnant. Verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. A few things here. It's been six months. Uh, One month, if that's the case, one month since Elizabeth has made the news public which is interesting. So it's public now. Gabriel is sent by God to Nazareth. The Jews from the south disdained the Jews up north. Uh, This wasn't like a Kentucky, Indiana kind of a goofball thing. This was the type of thing where actually they detested the people up north and especially in the area of Galilee because they bordered Gentile territory. Can I just say, how sad is this? God's people are thinking like this. Just because they happen to be born in an area that borders Gentile territory, you're less than. It's just so sad. May we not be that way. And uh, Gabriel is sent by God to Mary. She's a Jewish, Jewess of the tribe of Judah, descendant of David. She's a teen. She's a virgin. She's poor with where they're at. That's just assumed in that area. She's engaged to a poor carpenter. That's just assumed because of the area. Now, a little bit about betrothal or a little bit about engagement of the day. In the day, it's different than now. In the day, uh, when you got engaged, you gave a solemn oral commitment. It wasn't just dinner somewhere really nice or in a really special spot, which is all really cool, but it was the kind of thing that include an oral commitment to the whole thing of it all. And so in that, that's what's taking place. The bride's father usually presented a dowry to the groom, sometimes also as well to the daughter in it all. The bridegroom generally presented gifts of jewelry and clothing. And for that, ladies? And by the way, it's interesting. We have the practice of a ring in that. There's some similarity there. Uh, engagement applied, implied a commitment nearly as binding as marriage. And in fact, if you were engaged in the day and then your, 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 engaged, uh, your fiance died, you were actually called a widow or a widower in that day. That's how it was viewed as very commitment. And, and to dissolve that engagement was basically the exact uh, kind of process, nearly the exact process as getting a divorce. Engagement was taken very seriously in the day. All those pieces of information matter, obviously, as the story unfolds. Verse 28. And he came to her, Gabriel, and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. 
Let me take just a couple minutes on this because this is a verse that gets taken in some really bad theological directions, okay? Um, let me talk on language, a little Greek here. First of all, it's greetings. It's an imperative. So it's a very excited greetings. It's not just like I just yawned in greeting or hello. It's kind of, a, I have something exciting to tell you type of a thing. And then it says, oh, favored one. Uh, it, it's called a perfect passive participle. Participle is verb-like. So it's a perfect passive. Perfect means that it's a, a perfect participle means that the favoring occurred in the past. It's an action that happened in the past. It's different than an aorist, which is just general. It, it happened. But it happened in the past, and it has the idea of ongoing implications of it. Here's a perfect verb. Jesus Christ died on the cross. It happened at one time, and it has ongoing implications. Jesus rose from the dead. That's perfect tense, if you will, in the Greek. He, he rose from the dead, and it has ongoing consequences. Here with this, this favoring, when you have been favored, it happened at one point, is the idea. The action happened, and it has ongoing consequences of it. But it's a passive participle. That means that she didn't do it. It was done to her. She did not earn her favoring. God graced her. Okay? It's a huge issue today. And some get so lost on thinking Mary is so far beyond just a woman of the time. I mean, how blessed is she? The scriptures talk about that. It's not her moral excellence that earned her the right to be able to birth the Messiah. It was God's sovereign choosing of her and favoring of her. But she had to do something to earn it. You see how we get messed up? And we think we have to earn God's favor. That's not grace. Mary was graced just like Zechariah and Elizabeth. And it says, the Lord is with you. By the way, that's not a typical greeting that would often be used in the Old Testament. Uh, or it is a typical greeting that's used in the Old Testament when it's the idea of something is now being given to you, a task of the Lord. And this is all really meaningful sentence there. Um, in that with Mary. And he came and he said, your greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you, verse 29. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Let me just say it this way. She was uncomfortable. I think this is actually one of those times where it's like, Mary is like, wait, 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 what, what are you talking about? I'm just a regular woman. Gotta keep going. She was greatly troubled. Verse 30, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. We already talked about that. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. I, listen, friends, let me just say this one more time. When you found out you had a child, you don't get information like this. I wish we would have. Because I would like to know what kind of... We didn't know till our kids were born whether we were having a boy and a girl. We didn't have all the fancy stuff. It was back in the olden days. In fact, we rode a horse to deliver the baby. <laughs> okay? But in that day, you're already learning all this stuff that we take for granted. And if some things are said here. Uh, one, do not be afraid. How kind is that? How kind is that? This reminds me of Revelation chapter 1 when John falls down and the Lord says, do not fear. It says, you have found favor with God. She didn't find it herself. It was graced upon her. You will conceive 
By the way, not right at this moment, but in the future, it says you will become pregnant. You will give birth, and the result is that you will give birth in that day. Giving birth was not a given at times with things. And then we're told six things about this child. He's a boy. He's not an alien. He's not some unhuman thing. It's going to be a male. He's told that his name is going to be Jesus, Jehovah's salvation. How cool is that? He will be great. Your child is not going to be like everyone else. Something's going to be unique about your child. He's the son of the most high. By the way, it doesn't say child of the most high, son of the most high. Son in that day meant equivalent of. It's not saying birthed of God. It's saying he's the equivalent of God. He is God. This is God in the flesh. He will be given the Davidic throne. He will be the reigning king. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. The Old Testament covenant fulfillments here. And these six statements in just this little bit are telling Mary that she is going to give birth to this one that has full humanity, full deity. He will have kingship and messiahship. Mary, you are going to give birth to the Messiah. Wow. Wow. So Mary has a question. Remember Zachariah's question? Verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? That's actually a pretty good question. Like, how is this going to happen? Because, like, that hasn't happened. How is this going to take place? Note the question, though. She is not pressing back on the fact of it. She's pressing back on the how of it. Zechariah pressed on the fact of it, followed by the how. That's important because Mary doesn't get silenced. Zechariah's response was different than Mary's. Mary's was like, wow, wasn't planning on that, but okay. But I got a question, how's that going to happen? She was believing that it was going to. We'll read that here in a little bit in the Magnificat as we read that. And she's believing it's going to happen. She's just wondering, how can that work out? It's a different thing. Verses 36 to 37. Let me pick up verse 35. And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age, by the way, you see a relative? Your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. So cool. Mary, you wondering how? I'm not going to zip your lip. I'm going to tell you how. This is how. And he tells her. And by the way, He tells her some more information with it. Your relative, let's just say your aunt, is pregnant as well. Verse 38, Mary said, Behold, I am the doulos of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Oh, friends, this is so what a special young lady. She's like, I'm in. I'm in. I'm game with this. I'm a handmaid of the Lord. I'm a doulos of the Lord, a bondservant of the Lord. I'm available for what the Lord would have, even though that was not my plan. So not my plan. But I'm in on that. And may I remind us, all of what is going to come out of this for her, I mean, my goodness, the rejection, the rejection, 
the gossip. What's her fiance going to say? What's her family going to say? What are her friends in the community going to say? Especially in that day. And I just have to ask, as I've asked me this week, when the sovereign God allows something unplanned and unexpected, how do you respond? Because this is really where so much of the rubber meets the road here in the beginning part of this. God could have come any way that he wanted. And yet God in this is coming through these lives and bringing them into living stories for his glory. And yet, how would I respond? Zechariah responded differently than Elizabeth, by the way. And Mary responded differently than all three of them. And I just ask, how, how, how do we respond? Are there times to where it's like, I question God's capacity and capability to be able to make that happen and do it? Is it like rejoicing in it? I think we, we don't know a whole lot about Elizabeth, but she's thrilled about it. Is it like Mary, like, whoa, you just blew my bubble on this, but I'm in. Verse 39 to 45. In those days, Mary arose, went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. By the way, remember? We were told in verse 15, I think it was, that the baby would be filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. God is jumping in her womb. Oh, so cool. And the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. God is now allowing her to understand and she's stating this truth. Verse 43, and why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? An older woman gets it. Here at this point when the Holy Spirit allows her to understand and she is in awe of the fact, oh my word, the Messiah that has been talked about, we've been looking for for thousands and thousands of years, the Messiah is right in front of me in her womb. And she is just filled with joy over this. That what God has done and, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. How does she know it leaped for joy? Oh, she's filled with the Holy Spirit. And verse 45, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And that's a key. She understands that Mary believed that the Lord would do this. So many things in this we could spend time with, but obviously we can't. Go to verse 56. And Mary remained with her about, how long? That's a long time. Remained with her about three months. Three months, wait. Didn't they connect up when she's about six months? So she's probably leaving right near the time that Elizabeth is about to give birth. you get this picture that these two women have become a team. And they are. And they've become a team here because they are about to give birth to the one who will come before the one and the one. And how excited are they in all of this? 
And so Mary replies. I want to finish with reading the Magnificat. Look at verse 46. And Mary said. Now, she's going to say three things, and then I'll read it. She says praise from herself. She gives a praise for the generations, and she gives a praise for Israel. Watch, this is so cool. What a young lady. My soul magnifies the Lord. My soul does. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. She's blessed because she's giving birth to the Messiah. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The Messiah has been announced in the text so far. The one before the Messiah is now about to be born. The Messiah is about to be born. It's all been laid out. And I just want to note this. And God stepped into the lives of an older married couple and a young single woman. And he could have done it any way he wanted I mean, God could have just, the second person of the Trinity could have just shown up as an adult and go to the cross. But God, this is the way God does it. God is not doing this just for himself. He's doing this to engage people in with him. And this is what the call of the gospel is today. Because I would just note something in this. He begins, God begins with a word. Zechariah. Elizabeth, Mary, I have some news for you. God begins with a word. And I might say, friend, God has begun with a word. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. God begins with a word. And then God, uh, that follows up with the decision needs to be made. Know this, I think at any point in time, Zachariah and Elizabeth and Mary could have said, totally, I'm out. It's implied in here that they're coming. Why is that? Because these are individuals that are desiring to walk and honor the Lord. I'm the Lord's doulos. I'm the Lord's handmaid. Uh, uh, they walked blamelessly even when life wasn't going well for Zachariah and Elizabeth. And yet they, even in various struggles and realities of it all, they engage with the Lord and they receive it and they walk away with it. I want in on that. I want to be a part of that. And by the way, their lives will never be the same again. The gospel is intended to change lives dramatically, not small. And may I note this as we close. Because of their receiving of what the Lord has put before them, 
there was great joy and great marveling and great hurt. They would see their sons murdered. And at this moment, we can be where this is so awesome. And the gospel can be presented like it solves all your problems. When you get home, you'll have a check in the mail for $100,000. Know this. Jesus said, all who will follow me need to be ready to give it all up. It's not easy. But to walk with the Lord is worth it. And if Mary, Elizabeth, and Zachariah were here, they would say, jump on board. So God, we leave it there and we we honor you and thank you. And we're just setting up here for the next few weeks what comes about is this birth of the Lord. And uh, so much of this story right at this point is really about the human factor of Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary. And, and, and the text lays that out there. And so I want to stay with that human factor of it. God, you want to enter into the lives of people and change them forever. God, I would pray if there's anyone in this room who doesn't know where they're at in relationship with you that they would talk with someone. That they would find out What does it mean to receive Christ as my Savior and to walk with Him? And God, if there's anyone in here who's struggling and with hard time things come along and push you off your bike or you're struggling with things going on, might I just say, take hope in the reality that even though Zachariah's lips were sealed for a little bit from maybe some of the consequences or discipline of the Lord from it with that, that you still used him greatly. You're not quick to crush us in our struggles. Fact of the matter is you're long-suffering in that. You're quick to have arms wide open. And you love it when your children wrestle with life and learn from it. God, this Christmas season, may we see you bigger. May we hold you higher. May we love you deeper. And may we run to you often. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray.